Hey, welcome to After Church Apologetics. I'm Courtney Seacrest here with Dr. Chris Jakeway and Pastor Leo Wilson, and we're inviting you to join us today in uncovering the truths that will challenge, inspire, and expand your perspective on Christianity. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of After Church Apologetics. Today's question is, who is Satan and how much power does he really have? There are two main passages that tell us the most about Satan, and I'll kind of abbreviate them here, but uh, to kind of lay the foundation for that, we, we don't know the exact time of Satan's fall in Scripture, but we know it was after God made the earth. Uh, Job 38, verse 4, is where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? So Satan is the most beautiful angel. He rebels. It's an issue of pride. He becomes envious of God. We see in Scripture God cast him and one-third of the angels out of heaven. And it's interesting, in Luke ten eighteen, Jesus said he was there when it happened as a second person of the Trinity. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Isaiah says this in uh, Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. By the way, in Latin, translating that Hebrew to Latin as Lucifer, that's where that uh, term comes from, morning star. Son of the dawn, you've been cast down from earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And then here's the real issue. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. That refers to Satan's future, which means that he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. Satan does not have the attributes of God. Satan is more powerful than us. But many Christians make the mistake of thinking that Christianity is a form of philosophical dualism where good and evil are equal but opposite powers, right? That, that Satan is somehow like the, the opposite of God. Well, it's true in terms of intent, but not in terms of power. I think people, even Christians, give Satan way too much credit. Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He has superior intelligence. He's smarter than us. But Satan can't read your mind, for example. A lot of Christians think that happens. Satan can only know a person's thoughts in the same way that someone who knows you really well can often know your thoughts just by observing you. Satan's also not omnipresent, so he can only bother one person at a time. You know, there are people who say... uh, I get up in the morning and I know Satan's trying to tempt me and I say, not today, devil, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Well, well we put it on T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we're flattering ourselves if we think that Satan is giving any of us individual attention because he can only influence one person at a time. So Satan, in effect, is going to be whispering into the ear of world leaders, uh, uh, not with uh, us. Now, of course, there are evil spirits. Demons are a reality biblically, but Satan has limited time. So he's going to spend his limited time 
it would seem, where it can have the greatest effect. Yeah, he's not going to be making you eat a brownie when you're supposed to be on a diet. That wasn't him, probably. (laughs) No, it wasn't. Uh, Another passage that I like is in the beginning of Job. Um, Job 1, 6 through 7, it says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So there you get the impression that he comes as an angelic category, right? The angels are approaching God, talking to him. Also in Job there, Job is, Job is addressed and God says, have you seen my servant Job? You know, um, he's, he's a righteous person. And Satan starts to ask for permission to do things to Job to show that he's not so righteous. So it, it shows not only is he in an angelic category of being, but also that his power level isn't there with God. He has to ask God for permission before he does it. And then God even puts limits on each one of the times that he's like, well, let me do this to him. And God's like, okay, you can do this, but you're not going to do this. And so he, he constantly is holding him back. So it shows this idea that he's submissive in an extent to God. Yeah, that that's significant. In Ezekiel, we see this in chapter 28, verses 13 to 19. This is the other uh, main passage where we get a description of Satan um, using typologically the king of Tyre and then later moves into uh, uh, Satan. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, kind of abbreviating it here. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. You were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. You have come to a horrible end. So Satan's kingdom is earth. A lot of people think Satan rules hell. But hell was created by God as a punishment for Satan. Satan's kingdom is earth. So the question comes up a lot in conjunction with this, can Satan do miracles? Satan cannot do miracles because a miracle, by definition, is an act of God. And Satan is not God. God is infinite. Satan is a finite, limited creature. Exactly what you were just uh, talking about in the book of Job. He has no supernatural power. That's another mistake that people make in, in thinking about Satan. He's a spirit being, so he's not limited with a physical body. That certainly would give him an uh, advantage over us, but no supernatural power. This is why Paul speaks of Satan in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, saying the work of Satan is displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, not actual miracles. The only thing Satan can do is deceive. And I think a great example of that is the third plague in Exodus, which, remember, was pestilence on the land. The first couple of plagues, you know, his sorcerers can color some water, move some frogs onto the land. They couldn't duplicate the third plague. In Exodus 8.16, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats, maggots actually in in Hebrew. Well, that of course recalls the book of Genesis that God created life from dirt, right? From dust. Well, Pharaoh's uh, sorcerers couldn't duplicate that. 
in Exodus 8, 18 to 19, it says, when they tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. They said to Pharaoh, this, this making life from dirt, this is the finger of God. They couldn't make life from non-life. So they could color the water. They could appear to move some frogs out of the river. But Satan couldn't duplicate what God did. Only God can create life and restore it. Yeah, I think sometimes when people ask that question about Satan being able to do miracles, they think of other passages in Scripture where, like, the Antichrist is going to perform signs and wonders. And they're like, oh, this is going to happen. But I think it's important to keep the Second Thessalonians passage in mind with the category of counterfeit. It says even to, uh, to deceive the elect, like even deceiving people who should know better. And it, just keep in mind that some things look very real, um, but they're not as the third plague that Chris described there. When they acknowledge it, they're like, okay, this, this is not just a trick. This is something that only God can do. So when bad things are happening to somebody, and I think the like typical Christianese like, type reaction is for us to be like, oh, it's spiritual warfare, it's spiritual warfare. Is, are we saying now that that isn't necessarily as powerful as we make it out to be? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, spiritual warfare is is clearly real. Like, it happens. But I think we overplay it sometimes, especially when we don't want to blame ourselves for problems. And it's like, well, how do I know the line? Well, maybe it's at least to know that there are two lines, but I think James addresses this really well. In James 1, passage uh, 13 through 15, it says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I think James is very clear there. Each person by their own evil desire. Our biggest problem, the reason why Christ came and talked to so many people about spiritual problems, not just physical problems, is the fact that we have our own issues to deal with, our flesh versus our spiritual nature. And we need to address those things. And, and we can't just go blaming spiritual things. We have a huge problem, and it's, and it's our flesh and our sin. Thanks for hanging out with us on After Church Apologetics today. To submit a question for a future episode of our show, you can email us at podcast at bcfriends.org. Remember, the pursuit of truth is ongoing. So we'd like to encourage you to continue seeking and engaging with the topics that we've discussed for yourselves. And as we conclude this episode, we want to remind you that respectful dialogue can bridge gaps and build connections. We'll see you next time.